Let's pray and uh, we shall begin. Let's pray together. Robert, is it? Am I on out there? It's good. Oh, yes, sir. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Father, we, um, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. The Bible says that he is our advocate and uh, Lord, he is the propitiation of our sin. We thank you for um, sending your son, Lord, to be a, a perfect, uh, obedient servant and to be the prototypical Christian, the one who is the righteous one, the one who obeys you perfectly, and also, Lord, the one who has made perfect atonement for the sin of your people. Lord, we thank you that because of his cross work, Lord, we stand uh, justified in your sight, not on the basis of anything that we can do, no merit of our own. Lord, we know that uh, left to ourselves, all we have is demerit. Father, left to ourselves, all we have is sin and misery. And uh, But because of your son Jesus, uh, we have uh, righteousness, life, and peace. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, bless this time in your word. We pray that your word would be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good. You have to surprise me, right? You sneak up on me like that. What's up, Mike? Um, okay, guys, let's, uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 4. And uh, let's continue. Uh, actually, no, this not just continue. It's not like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, business as usual. This is my last uh, class for a while, so we got to end this one on a bang. It's got to be a good one, right? Luke chapter four, uh, beginning in verse nine, we've reached the final wave of temptation of the Son of God, and uh, uh, this is uh, this is the Bible says. You know, it says. <coughs> Concerning uh, uh, Satan, it says, He led him up, so Satan is the one leading Jesus up to Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And that brings us to verse 14, obviously, in this whole uh, section. And exactly as I pointed out, uh, verse 14 and verse 1 of chapter 4 forms this very important inclusio, if you would, a bracketed section that begins and ends with the Spirit, I think, by design. Remember, there are no, uh, in the original Greek text, there are no titles to your Bibles. There are no paragraph breaks. There are no chapter breaks. There are no verses. And so all you have is just straight text all the way through, right? And so uh, uh, when you arrive at verse uh, 14, the reader would be uh, wise to point out that, oh, wow, even as uh, Jesus was full of the Spirit in verse 1 of verse 14, there seems to be some super abundant supply of the Spirit now given to the Son of God, because now he comes, as it says, in the power. And so he has arrived in power, and I think that power is uh, very important because what you're seeing in the temptation is a moment of weakness, Right? Uh, not sinful weakness, but you're seeing weakness in the Son of God in that this is, a, this is a prime example, brothers and sisters, of what it means for Jesus to have come in his state of humiliation, right? And the estates of Christ, you know, we're talking about two things. Uh, when we talk about the estates of Christ, uh, we're, we're talking about Christ coming in humility 
right? And, in, and, and then uh, Christ being uh, exalted. And then so we're talking about his exaltation. So his humiliation and his exaltation, that's what theologians speak about in terms of the estates of Christ. His incarnation is his humiliation, his condescension coming into this world. His exaltation is uh, uh, what you're seeing there is basically like his eschatological reward, you know, having uh, made perfect atonement, having lived a perfect life. Uh, to quote the words of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says, then he will divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, then you see Jesus sort of as the Christus victor, the, the one who is victorious over all his enemies. And there you see a picture of his triumph, right? You see the same thing, for example, in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 uh, ends with Jesus having vanquished all of his enemies and then casually drinking out of the brook to refresh himself, as if to say it was an effortless triumph over his enemies. And there he is just sort of lapping water out of a brook, (laughs) you know, and casually just sipping on water because, you know, he has destroyed all of his enemies. And that destruction of his enemies we're seeing here. So what are we seeing here? Well, you guys remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? We're talking about triumph and victory and things like that. Yes, sir. I always get that backwards, too. I'm supposed to know the Bible, and I always get that one backwards, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you see that conflict, right? And then you see that uh, accomplished with the metaphor of uh, why bruising and why the heel and why doesn't it say that you would just uh, defeat your enemy or something like that, right? Well, because we're dealing with a serpent. So what do you do to a serpent, you know? I remember once I was walking my dog, not Lily, but an older, crazier dog I used to have, baby. <laughs> my wife knows that dog. <laughs> and I was walking the dog, and right in front of me, I was getting ready to walk, and, you know, I'm not watching where I'm going. There's like a five-foot snake right in front of me, slithering in front of me, and I thought, whoa, you know, I'm not going to touch it with my hand, <laughs> you know, so I tried kicking it with my heel, you see. So that's what you do with a snake. You try to crush it with the heel of your foot uh, in, or, or in order to, to show your, uh, your supremacy over. I felt pretty powerful too when i did that you know <laughs> but uh but but we'll we'll see you know what does genesis chapter 3 verse 15 have to do with any of this well uh, what i'm saying is that with every wave of temptation and now we are on the third wave with every wave of temptation we can say that the serpent is being delivered a new blow to the head you see and uh, therefore it is not surprising to see what transpires in the in the context of this uh of this, uh, this, this, this wave of temptation. First of all, let's understand the setting. Verse 9. He led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, that introduces us to a temple theme. And w- w- what is really going on here, guys, is that w- what is the temple? What is the imagery of the temple? What does that provoke in us? I mean, there's a whole theology uh, that is uh, connected to... Uh, to the theme of temple, you guys have heard me speak about it ad agnosium ad infinitum, right? But the reason why is because the temple imagery is so important in the Bible. Don't you see, when Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, he takes him to the holy city, and in the holy city, he takes him to the, to the, very, uh, to the, very, the highest icon of religious life between God and man. He takes him to the center, the epicenter of uh, of God's presence, which is the temple, 
right? And he doesn't just take them to the temple. Where does he take them? He takes them up to the pinnacle of the temple, you see? So there he is. I mean, think about it. Like in Jerusalem, whether the temple was or what was not the actual geographically highest point in all of Jerusalem, it was considered to be, uh, 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 you know, the, the mountain of God, right? And so remember what the temple symbolizes. The, si- the, temp- the, the temple on earth is a replica. Those of you coming to the Klein group, get ready for that word because that's a big, that's a big term. What is it a replica of? Well, it's a replica of the highest heaven. That's what it is. It's a replica of the highest heaven. It is where the glory, God, the glory of God dwells. Um, and so, you know, here's God for all creation. Now, this is going to get a little abstract here, so just follow along. Here's God for all cre- for, uh, before all creation. Here's God. Here's God for all eternity. There's nothing outside of God at this point, okay? We're before creation of any kind. And then, as God decides to build heaven, immediately upon building heaven, He fills it. And what else did he, does He fill heaven with? Well, he fills, he fills the heavens with angels. And what do the angels do? What do the angels do? What's that? They worship him. In other words, what God is saying is the minute he builds a house, the next thing he does is immediately he accommodates worship to himself because that's what he deserves. <laughs> when God is in the house, you better worship him. You know what I'm saying? And then once the, the heavens are created, Genesis, we could even say this is Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there, heavens... Right. Uh, is not talking about the sky and the galaxy. It's talking about heaven, I think, uh, where God dwells now, uh, because you see heaven is not eternal like God. You guys ever think about that? <laughs> right. Not, talking about stars and not yet. That comes later in. Uh, yeah, that comes later on where God puts the stars and the moon and everything that right. So where was he dwelling before that? With himself. In a place that is not in any way spatially conceived. And so that's what I'm saying is that the environs of God uh, are not eternal as God is. Only God is truly eternal. And so the dwelling place of angels is also a created structure. And this created structure then is replicated upon earth. See that? Earth and I guess what we could call the visible heavens okay so this is the invisible this is the heavenly realm this is the this is what is presently uh presently uh man i can't ever spell this word right is it veiled or veiled Right, it is what is presently veiled to us earth dwellers, us creatures here on earth. We cannot presently see the glory of the invisible heavens. We can't see, we can't see that. Sometimes you get guys that, in the Bible, you know, prophets and things that are given glimpses into this. You know, I think of like Isaiah chapter 6. I think of like Genesis uh, chapter 28 with Jacob uh, when he saw the Beit Elohim, the house of God. He saw the angels of God descending and ascending, right? And those kinds of things. So they're given sort of a, a glimpse into the heavenly realms. And then, of course, you think of like John, right? The revelator, right? 
John in Revelation. He is certainly given a glimpse into heaven. And certain people are. And so when they are, then they're being alerted to the fact that there is a realm beyond what we can see. There is a realm that is presently veiled to us right now that we cannot see. The thing about Genesis chapter 28 was almost kind of frightening to me when I read it and I understood it for the first time. You understand what... uh, Uh, Jacob says there, you know, he says, how awesome is this place? It is the very house of God. What is he saying there? What he's saying is there, if if you want to get to the house of God, presently veiled house of God, where do you got to go? Nowhere. Jacob is saying it's right here. So what is he saying? What he's saying is this. If God, if he desired, he could pull back the veil for us to see heaven. And we wouldn't have to jump into a spaceship and go somewhere to go see it. It would be right next to us. It's realm sensitive. It is not spatially sensitive. Isn't that amazing? Uh, So what's that? So yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, I mean, think about it. And that's what the temple is a replica of. The temple is a replica of the highest heaven. And this is where Satan is taking the son of God to tempt him one more time. You see? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. Of course. Um, anyway, we can chase this on for an ev- forever and ever. But uh, you see now the significance of Satan taking him there. Um. If heaven and earth is a replica of the heaven of heavens, the highest heaven, or what I just call the high heaven, uh, then certainly um, uh, the temple is also connected to the concept of Eden. Remember, uh, Eden is uh, being, uh, uh, we're being told you know, throughout the Bible that Eden was, uh, in a sense, an earthly tabernacle, an earthly sanctuary temple of God, uh, okay? And that is uh, brought out all throughout. I don't want to repeat all of the different uh, all of the different uh, theology for that. But uh, this just connects us back to the whole theme of Adam. So we kind of keep our eye on Genesis chapter 3 because if, if uh, Eden was an earthly replica of the temple, right, then, uh, uh, and then certainly, how do we know that for certain? Well, because the tabernacle and, uh, and the, then Solomon's temple, those, t- those architectural structures were patterned after Eden. They were patterned after the garden of the Lord. And that's why you have that there going on. And so also in Revelation chapter uh, uh, 21 and 22, you also have, therefore, the future uh, cosmic temple, the consummate temple, basically heaven. uh, When we when we, in a sense, go to the high heaven, is all of it is uh, conceived of in temple themes. There are foundations, there are pillars uh, and 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 it's kind of like a a, by that point, it's kind of like a, a merger a convergence of the Edenic themes and the temple themes. They all come together. And so not surprising, Genesis chapter, Revelation chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 5, what you have there is a reference back to the, the Garden of Eden and the river and the Tree of Life and all of that going on there, you see? And the precious stones that Eden had within it in Genesis 2. And all of that is made, made, you know, causing us to see like, oh, I see. So what, what God did with Adam and Eve on earth was a, uh, earthly replica of the heavenly realm. That's all it really was, you know. 
And so any questions about that before we move on? I really want to tackle this text, but anybody? Anybody? Kind of fascinating, isn't it? Um, yes, sir. Uh-huh. That it was referring to what never heard it referred to as like created the heavens and the earth that it was the highest heaven yeah. mm-hmm. and then the earth. Yeah, like how, how do you get there on that? I just tried Is it a different word in the Greek? No, it's the same word. It's the same word and that's on purpose. Uh Hebrew, Hashaim. So Hashaim is the same word there that is there because there is an interplay. There's sort of like an interpenetration. And uh, as you go through the scriptures, it's the typology that shows you that they're related through this replication process. And so the heavens that we see, the sky, the galaxies, right, they are to project and order man's mind towards the highest heaven. That's what it's all about. So we should definitely look up to the skies and to the galaxies, and we should, in a sense, uh, think of the high heaven, you know, that we are going to a place that is so expansive and Right? And that's no surprise to us, right? Because the, think about the land, okay? Forget about the sky and the stars, right? Think about the land. In the same way that you were to look at the promised land, you were also to look beyond the promised land to the high heavens, to the, to the land that, you know, what does it say? Whose builder or maker is God. You see what I'm saying? So just as you looked at the promised land, that was also meant to send you to the new heavens and the new earth. As you look to the cosmic land or cosmic world, as you, as you, you know, as it were, you were also supposed to look beyond that to the heaven of heavens. So that's, that's, that's what I think. So uh, anyway, uh, we, I have so much to get to because we've got we to gotta understand this whole thing here. What, what is Satan tempting uh, Jesus with? He says, if you are the, uh, this is uh, Luke uh, 4, verse 9, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. What is he saying to him? Why is he telling him to do that? Why is he telling him to do that? What's at stake there? This is Sunday school level stuff. What's at stake if Jesus says, okay, fine, I'll throw myself down to prove that, that I am the Son of God, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's say he died on the way down, right? Then he wouldn't go to the cross. That's a big problem, isn't it? <laughs> right? Well, not according to Jesse Morrell. I mean, maybe God doesn't know the future and what's going to happen on the way down. Yeah. What's that? Oh, yeah, very good, because earlier, right, uh, Michelle, what, what, what is? Yeah, yeah, because he said earlier, didn't he? Verse 7. If, therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. So, yeah, definitely uh, there the anti-Lord is seeking worship. I, I would say, I would go further than that, the anti-Lord is seeking covenant faithfulness. It's almost like a vassal suzerain treaty that he's trying to establish to try to give, set forth a pseudo-antithesis to Eden, right? Just like Adam and Eve were in a covenant relationship with God, it's almost like the anti-Lord here is trying to establish a pseudo-covenant with Christ. But anyway. It's not even interesting how in the verse of trees that after baptized with the proclamation from heaven, Why don't you read that? Why don't you read that uh, there? Because that was, that was where I was going next. So not only did you steal my thunder, but now you're going to have to read it. 21 to 22. Yes. It says, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heavens was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Mm, that's right. So u
are my beloved son. The word from the serpent is if you are. Uh, uh, John MacArthur, which I didn't like in his commentary, actually asserts when it says here in Luke uh, 4, 9, if you are, he asserts in brackets, since you are. To try to, to, to clarify the translation, that's wrong. Because uh, we have to feel the full weight of what the serpent is insinuating here. Because what he's insinuating is to contradict chapter 3 in the baptism declaration. That's right. Consequently, when Jesus is baptized, who is present at his baptism? Why, the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit doing? Why, he is descending upon him, right? And so there you have in the waters of baptism the descent of the Spirit upon the Son of God. And what that reminds the reader is something like Genesis 1-2, right? That the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, the waters of the deep, you see? And so there, it's kind of like what, what is being signaled, and almost everybody points this out, you know, in their commentaries, and their biblical theologians point, us, point this out, that what's happening here is that the Spirit, in a sense, is signaling the beginning of a new creation in Christ. And you have the same phenomena going on right after the flood in Noah. The flood in Noah, and then what does it say? It says, the Ruach was blowing over the waters, and then the land appeared, you see? And so you have, again, a new creation emerging after the destruction of the first earth. And so uh, that was just sort of symbolic of, you know, these new creational ideas until we arrive at the new creation in Christ who actually inaugurates uh, the actual uh, new creation. And that new creation, how do we know that for certain? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You guys know that verse. It's one of the favorite verses of all Christians, right? If anyone be, how's it go? <laughs> I'm supposed to know it. If, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. That's right. New, new, new creature, literally new creation, right? So there you go. You know, to be in Christ means that you participate in the new creation to come. Exactly what Romans chapter 8 talks about. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and following. What is it saying there? It's saying that we, those who have been redeemed, we are, in a sense, like the first fruits of a new creation, right? And that uh, uh, we're, we're the evidence of that. We're the evidence that a new world is coming. Uh, those who have been regenerated because we have the principle of eternal life already operative within us until eternal life is consummated uh, in a new heaven and a new earth. So, uh, yeah, so uh, if you go back here then, uh, not only do you have their... Uh, 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 Satan sort of trying to get Jesus to to uh, uh, to to second guess the word of the Father. You are the Son of God, but of course you are. But then he's quoting Psalm ninety one. So let's put up another scripture here. Uh, oh, Psalm Psalm ninety one uh, verses uh, eleven uh, to thirteen. And look at what that Psalm says here. It says, "He will command his angels concerning you to guard you." Now, is that true? Oh, by the way. Uh, if you understand anything about Psalm 91, it is messianic. And here's another thing. Just erase all this. It is messianic specifically uh, with the idea here of protecting the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? So it's like Satan knows what he's talking about, right? Satan just, he's not playing Bible roulette. 
He picked a psalm that is messianic, and that messianic psalm talks about God's promise to protect the Messiah. And so it's almost like Satan saying, if you know your word, Jesus, you know that the passage I'm quoting you is true. You know that in this psalm, God promises to protect you. You, you, What, you don't believe Psalm 91, right? And, and, And what does he do here? He says, okay, he'll command his angels to have guard over you. Look at verse 11. On their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot. Hmm. You will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, why is, uh, why is the serpent concerned with the feet of Jesus? Why is he concerned with the feet of Jesus? Everybody have Psalm 91 open? Everyone's like, of course we do. Yeah, of course. Chris Matthews, can you read Psalm 91, verse 13? So part of Messiah's protection is that he will also trample the serpents under his feet. So Satan understands that. Number one, let's omit that verse conveniently. <laughs> it's the next verse. The next verse is about trampling the cobras under your feet, you know. And so Satan just leaves that part out of it, right? Very conveniently. And so, yes, it's a protection. It's a, it's a psalm of protection, but it's also a psalm of triumph. And the Messiah is supposed to triumph over the serpent. Um, any questions about that? Isn't that remarkable? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, uh, Chris, read that one more time for us. Verse again. Hmm. What does verse 14 say? Yeah, yeah, that's right. What, 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 what is brought to mind when we think about the psalmist declaration there of this figure having, if you would, having the ability to trample over these beasts? What, what, what does that remind you of there? Anything? Does that bring anything to recollection? What's that? Uh, no, like when... It says that God will uh, tread the winepress of the of His wrath, or something like that. Right? That's not what I was thinking. Um, I was thinking about the Adamic mandate, right, where Adam was to have dominion over the animals. You know, so this is anytime you find this a lot in the prophets, you find this Adamic sort of theme that uh, uh, you know that in order to arrive to the new creation, what you find is that once again. So sometimes it's Israel. Uh, and sometimes it's one righteous individual like this and you know, prefiguring Christ where once again you will have dominion over the wild animals. What does Mark chapter 1 tell us? Mark chapter 1 verse 13. Verse 13. Can somebody uh, repeat that again for us? Mark chapter 1 verse 13. Felix, you got that? You know where Mark's at? You know where Mark chapter 1's at? 
You know where Mark chapter 1, verse 13 is at? <laughs> I'm giving you some time. <laughs> Read verse 13 for us. Yeah. It's like, why does Mark decide to point that out? You know what I mean? He's with the wild beasts. Well, it's because, you know, the Messiah, according to uh, according to uh, Psalm 91, he will be among beasts, serpents and things like that. Right. And uh, and also that that whole idea of wild beasts, you know, like I can't remember where it is, but somewhere in the book of Isaiah, for example, you know, as part of the judgment of God, you know, Jerusalem is filled with jackals and serpents and you know, and, and all that stuff. And so Israel, because of its apostasy, does not have triumph over the wild beasts, right? But they have overcome Jerusalem. And so the whole city is desolate. Think of like a howling wasteland and the city just laying in ruins and jackals coming out of corners. And you see what I'm saying? So it's pointing to a decreational act. And what is needed is a new creational act, you see? And this is what has come in Christ. He is the one that will deliver Jerusalem. He will deliver uh, his people from the wild beasts. In other words, he will take us out of the wilderness of sin and he put us back into the garden of paradise. You see, that's what the whole imagery is supposed to be uh, uh, conveying there. Anybody have any questions about that or comments or insights? Yes, sir. Uh, no, I, I think, uh, yes, but the dominion at that point is perverted, right? It's no longer in a harmonious fashion. Now it's, uh, now it's a matter of terror, you know, which is a product of sin. So, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, from the very beginning. Yeah. Same tactics. You know. Uh, you know. There is something too. If you hear a sermon on uh, the temptation of Christ, uh, usually we're not talking about earthly replicas of the highest heaven and all that. You know. Usually the pastor is saying. You know. That you might hear a sermon on the temptation of Christ, and it will be entitled something like this: His temptation and yours. Right. Because uh, typically uh, in exposition, people want to make a direct line between the text and application to you. That is right. And so what we're doing here is something a little bit more uh, rooted in biblical theology than anything. But it's right. I think it's right. Right. Because that, I mean, that's where the text goes. We go to Psalm 91, takes us back to Genesis, you know, all these connections uh, that are going on. Oh, by the way, uh, Psalm 91 is also used by Jesus in Luke 10. Turn there for a second. Luke chapter 10. Jesus actually will use this text one more time. Uh, <clears throat> and this time it's in a whole different context. Notice what it says there. Notice what it says there. It's used in the very same context as warfare. Uh, if you, uh, uh, well, I'm sure you've forgotten by now, but in, in our study, what I said is that in the Spirit of Christ, and one of the aspects of the Spirit of Christ here is that God, is that the Spirit anoints or empowers the Messiah for the purpose of holy warfare. That's what I said. 
and, uh, and, 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 and this sort of extends now this language of spiritual warfare. Look at uh, verse 17, for example. You guys know this, uh, you know this passage. Uh, Luke 10, verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. So there is an allusion back to Psalm 91. And so here it's almost as if uh, Jesus is identifying the evil that is at work in Psalm 91. I think it's verse 6 or something that even mentions the evil but uh, what Jesus is saying is that that evil is ultimately going to be manifested through demonic powers, and it will be crystallized in the uh, in the uh, uh, in, in the in the ultimate uh, uh, anti-Lord nemesis himself, Satan. Um, and so he uses that text to show that this is uh, that that Psalm ninety-one is you know talking about or referring to their combat with with the demons and with the devil. So. I just thought that was interesting that he went back to that and he used that text one more time, you know. How does Jesus counteract this whole thing? How does Jesus answer the temptations of Satan? He doesn't take the bait, of course, because he is the Son of God. He doesn't take the bait because, uh, obviously, because uh, he is God's Son, and part of being God's Son means that he is God's well-pleasing Son, right? Uh, what is at stake here, guys? What's, what's at stake here? What's at stake here is obedience, uh, Please understand this, okay? Remember I told you last time, the reason why all these Edemic things are so important, you know, these themes of Adam and Eden and all of that, is because of the central issue of obedience, you know? Uh, if, e- if Jesus doesn't obey, you know, not only is he in trouble, we're in trouble. You know what I mean? The reason why is because you and I cannot obey, uh, not, at least not perfectly, not righteously. We cannot earn or merit our salvation. And so at the very heart of what's going on here is a matter of obedience. And so, and so as the true Israel, Jesus, the section of Scripture that he uses to combat the devil comes directly out of the Shema, okay? Out of the Shema of Israel. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, right? And that Shema uh, section, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, that whole section there is, identified as the Shema section of Israel. This is where Israel was supposed to be faithful to the Lord. This is where Israel was supposed to be in covenant faithfulness to God and was supposed to obey. Did they obey? Here, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6, because we need to look at the surrounding section. Now, Jesus, uh, in this section, to prove his obedience, he is going to quote Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Okay, but... Oh, I tell you what, this is this is going to tie the whole, I think, I might just read this in close because it really just kind of ties it all together. It summarizes everything. <laughs> it summarizes everything so perfectly. Uh, you know, every, everything that, that we're looking at here with the, the, the this warfare with Satan. Um, verses 16 through 19. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, that's what's recorded in Luke in the synoptics, okay? Where does it come from? As you tested him at Massah. And so, unlike the failures of Israel at Massah, you will not put the Lord your God to test. It's just like Jesus fulfills this very thing that Israel failed in, okay? 
and, and says, you should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Obedience, obedience, perfect obedience. He says, and his testimonies, his statutes as he commanded you, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Wow, look at that. It's just like everything the anti-Lord wants to get him not to do. Right? He does not want him to do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. He wants him to do what's good and right in his own sight. You see? It's just like Eve, right? Don't listen to the word of the Lord. Don't obey God's commission and his commandments in the garden. Do your own thing. And follow your own lusts. Follow the own desires of your eyes and your heart and your own wisdom. You see, see what's going on there? It's like, no, no, no. The one who will do right, obey all these things, is the one who will do right in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you. Now, let, let's, let's look fast forward because we could say that's almost like the entire eschatological plan of redemption is right here, messianically, uh, concentrically connected, meaning it all, you know, it starts with, watch this now, starts with a very central uh, issue, but it, 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 it sort of, it goes from there, but connected, the circle gets wider and wider. So we begin with Israel, uh, Israel, and then we begin to see that that Israel, and then you get to the prophets. And this whole theme is picked up by then, and then by then they start talking about eschatology. By the time this language comes back around again, the prophets are talking about eschatology and prophecy about the Messiah. And then you get to Christ, who actually fulfills this thing. This is the way that typology works all over the Bible. It's concentric. In other words, it begins with a small center of focus, and then it expands, gets a little bit larger until it gets to the full thing, but they are, all, they are all organically connected. You see, this is the way the mind of God works. This is the way that he's revealed it to us in Scripture. You see? Um, yeah. So do right, and what will happen? Reward. Of course. That it may go well with you, that you may uh, go in and possess the good land, uh, which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Yeah, you want to talk about concentric. So you, okay, r- rewind, do it again. Okay, now we have the issue of the land. Okay, and so the land is given to Israel, right? But then it's also enlarged because it's, no, no, it's first given to the fathers, then it's given to Israel, and then it's fulfilled in Christ. You see how it's working? All the time, it always works like that. Why are the prophets so important? Why, why, why are, you know, prophets are really important because a lot of times the prophets, they, they, they form this bridge, Okay, from the immediate historical situation, then to its prophetic significance, which is always messianic, and then they become that bridge between the original historical situation and its ultimate fulfillment. Give you one more example. Okay, Exodus chapter four, verses nineteen through twenty. Okay, this is picked up by Hosea chapter eleven, verse one. This is picked up by Matthew chapter two, verse fifteen. See, what is it talking about? In Exodus, it says, you are my son, right, to Israel. God, Israel is God's son. And out of Egypt, he called his son. Well, that's what Hosea 11 says. Out of Israel, I've called my son. Well, that's what Matthew says. <laughs> Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. But this time, it's talking about Christ, don't you see? So here, it's talking about the Exodus, right? And in Hosea, it's talking about, uh, it's talking about, uh, Israel at a totally different time, okay? This is talking about Israel's connection to Assyria. And Matthew picks that up. Is Matthew talking about Assyria anymore? Absolutely not. 
Matthew's talking about Christ. Christ is the one that is called out of Egypt. Why is Assyria important? Well, because when uh, Israel was under attack by Assyria, they said to themselves, I'll tell you what, we're, being under, we're under attack. The Assyrians are coming. In order to, to, to protect ourselves, we will flee to Egypt and seek support. They're an old enemy territory, but we're willing to go there to save ourselves. Instead of trusting in God, repenting as a nation, coming back to God and let him defend you, they said, we're going to flee to Egypt, don't you see? That's how they ended up in Egypt again. And then that sets up the stage for Christ when he had to flee because Herod was pursuing him, you see? And so this is the way that it always works. So I just gave you the hermeneutics called redemptive historical hermeneutics, and that's really important. This I memorized only because it's the easiest way I can show somebody, like, this is the way the Bible works, you know? It's the way the Bible works. It's clear as mud, right? Cassie, you got it. <laughs> Come on, I need some support. <laughs> um, any questions? I don't know the... Yeah. Yeah, which uh, anytime you hear language like that, what that basically means is it supports this concept that Jesus is the final Exodus leader. So the Exodus itself, the Exodus itself is a redemptive historical event that culminates in the work of Christ. Okay, what's the final word there in Deuteronomy 6, verse 19? By driving out all your enemies. So wait a minute, hold on. You'll possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers by driving out all your enemies before. Remember, this is where Jesus is quoting this from the text, right? In Luke 4, this is the passage that Jesus is quoting right out of here, and the context is about driving your enemies away. So right after he quotes this, what happens? What happens? Back in Luke, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 13, Luke chapter 4, verse 13. When the, div- when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until... Man, I wish it would have just ended there, right? <laughs> Until an opportune time. Opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It's almost like what we have before us here in holy warfare is a ceasefire. Satan goes to his corner. Christ goes to his corner, Right? Until an opportune time. Where is that opportune time going to come back in again? Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. And matter of fact, that is uh, introduced in Luke chapter 22. Uh, I can read it to you, Luke 22, verse 53. In verse 53, it says, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. Remember that? And then if you look at Luke chapter 23, beginning in, in verse 35, what's going on there? What's going on here is that this is the account of Luke uh, of the crucifixion. Notice what you have. Verse 35. And the people stood by looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. Same thing the devil did right there. 
if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Listen to the blasphemy. The soldiers, so we go from the people, soldiers, they also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews. Listen to the blasphemy. It's very serpentile, right? Save yourself. Abort the mission. Save yourself. Verse 39. Criminals. Wow, you see what's going on there? Go from the people, soldiers, criminals. Criminals. Okay. What does a criminal say? One of the criminals hanging there with him hurled abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. <laughs> and us, of course. Save us too. Let me insult you, but save us while you're... (laughs) So wicked. Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, rebuking the first criminal, do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, here here, here we are, brothers and sisters. All of humanity is represented right here. Ready? You're either with criminal one or criminal two but we're all criminals. You're either with criminal one, which is serpentile, the seed of the serpent, or you are with criminal two, the seed of the Savior. It says, do you not even fear God? We are under the same condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly. What's the way to salvation? Acknowledge and confess your sin and your misery before God. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And and, uh, he was saying, Jesus, remember when you come into your kingdom. And when Jesus heard this, brothers and sisters, when he heard, he's been silent for a long time. He's letting everybody abuse him and curse him and slander him and blaspheme him. and 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 the words and the sayings and the accusations are coming and he is staying silent. But the minute that he hears the words of faith, the words that are in keeping with the kingdom, what does he say? He goes back to the very beginning of the plan of redemption. And he says, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. It's like Jesus had the entire plan of redemption on his heart right when he said that. It's almost as if like, what he was thinking was this criminal rewind and now go through millennia of time. He gets it. (laughs) It's what what everybody should have gotten. It's what everybody should have understood. That paradise lost as we go through the centuries to get back to paradise. There's only one way to get back to where everybody wants to go. And it's through faith in me. And so this criminal represents the seed of the Savior, who by faith is justified on the basis of Jesus' covenant obedience, and he is brought safely to paradise. Covenant theology, you better believe it. This is what it's all about. The covenant of works, fulfilled. Covenant of redemption, upheld. The covenant of grace, bestowed by faith. Isn't it marvelous? Any questions? Or should we just pray? (laughs) Because...
Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, um, Lord, we recognize that um, we are that criminal that hung with Jesus on the cross. And by your grace and by your mercy, you have caused us to believe like Lydia. You've opened up our hearts and you've caused us to put our faith in the only one that can deliver us from judgment. And every single person here should be crucified like that criminal. And, um, and Lord, yet the beauty of all this is that though we justly deserve that, because of Jesus and because of faith in him, we can be graciously pardoned and accepted into your kingdom, accepted into paradise. We long for that day. We thank you for the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, Lord. Thank you that he did not yield for a moment to the serpent, that he did not cave like Elijah under distress, and he did not despair. He didn't say, just kill me, God, forget it. That's not what he said. Jesus said, I've come to do your will, O God. Your will be done, not mine. And because of that, Lord, we can have his righteousness put to our account as sinners, and we can be justified in your sight. So we thank you for the gospel today, Lord. Bless our time of worship. We thank you for this glorious day in Jesus' name. Amen.